Good morning. How you all doing this morning? You're all looking nice and lovely out there. And uh, I just want to, before I begin, just say it's good to be back. Pastor Phil and Tammy, thank you so much for trusting me not to preach heresy this morning. And uh, it's always good when people trust you with their pulpit. I know how dangerous it can be. I want to just encourage you guys today. I, I just want to say, I'm going to be reading from something really cool, guys. I'm holding a bit of history in my hand. This is the first, you know, the New Testament was written by all Jewish believers except Luke, but he was a doctor, so he might have been Jewish. Um, this is a first, since the first Bible was written, this is the first translation in modern times done by all Messianic Jewish rabbis, leaders, and scholars. And uh, there's, this is an amazing work with all sorts of things in it, with study notes and yours truly written in. I can say my name is in the Bible. My mom is very proud. No. <laughs> but you ch- I encourage you to check it out. We got this on the table uh, out there in the back, and I'll be looking at it today in case you're wondering what I'm reading from. But I want to actually share, uh, Pastor Phil said you guys were going through a message, uh, through a series on Genesis. So I spoke on Genesis in the first service. But since I don't like giving the same message twice, I'm going to share with you a different message. So if you want to check that one out, you can. We're actually, I believe, we, it's important for us to learn to live with the times and the seasons. And there's something significant about the biblical uh, calendar. I don't know if you know this, but every major event in the life of Jesus happened on a Jewish holiday. He died as the Passover lamb. He rose from the dead on the holiday of first fruits, and he poured out the spirit on Pentecost, which is Shavuot, which is also the same day that the Torah, the Ten Commandments were given from Mount Sinai. So on the same day, the word was given, the spirit was given. And so much of his life revolved around the Jewish holidays, and we're heading into a season of some of the most important Jewish holidays, such as Passover, but we're only like a couple weeks out from another important Jewish holiday, it is the holiday known as Purim. Can you say Purim? It is the story of the book of Esther that happened right at this season. And we've just entered into the biblical month in which the story of Esther takes place. The month is called Adar. Can you say Adar? And this is what we read in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verse 22. It says the following, the month was transformed for them from sorrow to joy. The month was transformed for them from sorrow to joy. And I believe this is a season where where God is wanting to take our lives and turn your sadness into gladness. He wants to turn your darkness into light. He wants to turn your heaviness into lightness. And if you want breakthrough in this season, one of the things that you have to allow to occur is for your joy to break forth. You guys ready to let your joy break forth this morning? Come on. And come on here at Influence Church. Let me hear your joy break forth. Right? And let me tell you, I felt it in the worship. We got the little groove on. I was feeling the groove, you know. Sure, I was getting the groove on. Listen, part of the reason why joy is so important in Hebrew says, Simcha poritz geder. It says, joy breaks every yoke. If you are carrying something or you have someone in your life that is carrying something, what we need to know is that joy breaks all yokes and laughter helps to remove all obstacles. It was at this season that the Lord transformed sorrow into joy for Esther and Mordechai and the entire Jewish people. And guess what? What God did for them, he still wants to do for us today. Amen? And this is the promise of the Messiah, John 15, 11. I told you these things so that you would be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is a season where God wants our joy to overflow. And in Purim is a time where we light up the world with our laughter and with our love because celebration leads to elevation. The degree of our celebration will determine the degree of our elevation because joy lifts us up and it seats us in a different position. 
And we're called to serve God, serve God with joy and gladness. And I think we all know that from Psalm 100. Yeah, we're supposed to serve the Lord with joy and gladness, and God loves a cheerful giver, and that's all good. But let me tell you something. There is a verse in Deuteronomy, and I want you to really listen to what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in dire poverty, you will serve the enemy that the Lord sends against you, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until you are destroyed. Because in the time of prosperity, in the time of goodness, we fail to serve him with joy and with gladness. And I think it's way too easy when times are good, when everything is going awesome around us, I think it's so easy to be robbed of our joy because we can get focused on all the things that we don't have instead of all the things that we do have. In Jewish thought, it says that we're not just, it says one of the things is that we're called to thank God for every good thing that he has given us, and then it's actually a sin not to enjoy those blessings that he's given to us. He's given to us so many great things. We're to serve the Lord with joy and strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy and laughter is at the heart of the kingdom. And you know what? Jesus liked to laugh. He liked to have a good time. Laughter is holy and it's good for the soul. The children love to come to him and part of being part of the kingdom, part of being in the kingdom is living with an abiding sense of joy and with gladness. I gotta tell you, I think sometimes people don't like hanging around believers uh, because we're just not fun enough. We should be the most fun people in the world. Because we have this amazing relationship and Messiah promises us his joy. And joy is an emotional pattern, an abiding sense of happiness. Joy is an optimistic, sunshine-filled, emotional pattern of happiness. When my kids were little, littler, smaller, uh, they, they used to love Winnie the Pooh. How many of you guys liked Winnie the Pooh when you were little? Right? And... When I think about joy, the person from Winnie the Pooh who comes to mind is who? Tigger. The wonderful things about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, flouncy, trouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful chaps. They're loaded with women vigor. They love to leap in your laps. They're bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. The most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. Right? Come on. I want to be a Tigger. Woo! Right? But people are jealous of Tiggers. Because sometimes Tiggers just tick people off because you know when you're having a bad day or a bad season and that Tigger personality rocks in the room, you're like, please, I can't take it. Because joy provokes people, hopefully, to jealousy in a good way. But in truth, the reality is we're oftentimes more like Eeyore than we're like Tigger, and I don't believe that's what God wants. Tigger, good morning, Pooh Bear, said Eeyore gloomily. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. Pooh, why? What's the matter? Nothing, Pooh Bear, nothing. We all can't, and some of us don't, and that's all there is to it. Can't all what, says Pooh? Gaiety, song and dance. Here we go again around the mulberry bush. This is what Pierre says. There's only one rain cloud in the entire sky, and somehow I'm not surprised it's raining on me. And the question is, are we the type of people that look at every situation and expect the worst? Or we look at every situation and believe God for the best? In the days of Esther and Mordechai, it was easy to look at the situation and expect the worst. Where's God? This homicidal 
genocidal maniac wants to wipe out all the Jewish people and where is God in the midst of this and what's happening? And, and it would have been easy to look at the situation and become depressed and gloomy and pessimistic, which is the tendency to be negative or see things unfavorable. And it's the opposite of joy and gladness. And sometimes we become so negative that it's impossible to even see the positive in a situation. And sometimes we have the opposite of the Midas touch. We can take something good and turn it something bad. We can take joy and turn it into something gloomy. And it's like what Eir said. He says, it works. I don't expect it to. I know it's going well now, but I'm just waiting for the bottom to drop out. It's like the person who says, man, my cup overfloweth. What a mess. Do I have to have this overflowing cup? Look at the spill on the table. We can turn the overflow if we're not careful into something negative. And sometimes we justify our negative, gloomy attitude because we're scared, of, uh, we're scared and we have this fear and anxiety, which is the opposite of joy, which robs us of our joy. In the days of Mordechai and Esther, he turned the sadness into gladness, the, do, the, the doom and gloom, he caused it to bloom into blessing. And you know the story of the book of Esther. He, the king, uh, uh, King Ahasuerus in Hebrew, Xerxes, he wants his wife Vashi to come parade and dance before all the men after they had this big banquet and she refuses to come and he kicks her out and he has a beauty contest to look for another wife and they search the entire kingdom to find the most beautiful one and they find this beautiful woman and her name is in Hebrew Hadassah, her Persian name was Esther and he winds up marrying her because he chose Esther in the end because he found her the most lovely and attractive in his sight but the question is why? Was it just because Esther was a hottie? Was it just because she was, she was this hot-looking woman and she had it all together? I think, no, there's something more. The name for Esther in Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word, which means hidden. Esther is connected to the word Hester, which means hidden. Yes, Esther was beautiful on the outside, but there were many beautiful women that the king had access to. Why did he choose Esther to be the queen? Because there was a hidden inner beauty that she radiated from the inside out that attracted the king to her. And God wants to beautify us, but our beauty has to be more than just skin deep. And a key part of beauty is, comes from that inner radiant joy. And that's the reason why Haman hates Mordecai. When I say Haman, you can say boo. Haman! Okay. <laughs> Do a little better. Because, because Mordecai and Esther have something Haman can never have. He's jealous because he sees a beauty and a blessing on their life that he can never seem to obtain. And the reason is, is because Haman embodies the spirit of his ancestor. And what is that spirit? That spirit is the spirit of Amalek. Can you say Amalek? Haman was a descendant of Amalek and he bore the spirit of Amalek and embodies the spirit of Amalek. And Amalek is not a nation or an individual. It is a spirit. And I believe the spirit of Amalek is the spirit of the age in which we live. I mean, an aspect of that spirit, which I'm not going to get into, is an aspect of that spirit is Amalek, when Israel comes out of Egypt, he attacks the women and the children, the weak and the stragglers who can't defend themselves. So part of the spirit of Amalek is to pick on the defenseless and to prey on the weak. And we certainly see that going around all around the world today. That is an aspect of the spirit of Amalek. And we are called to wage war against Amalek eternally throughout the age. But the way you overcome a spirit is to not come in a stronger spirit. It's to come in the opposite spirit. So the spirit of Amalek is a spirit of sadness. The spirit of Amalek is a spirit of depression. And it's a spirit of depression and sadness because it's rooted in doubt. Amalek is the first atheist. He's the first one to deny God's existence. He's got no faith. 
And without that faith, there is a negativity, there is a sadness, there is a depression that is meant to rob us of our joy and gladness. So the reason why it is so important to be joyous at this season is that one of the ways we overcome the spirit and beautify the bride for the king is with joy. So when the, this biblical month that has just started comes, we're to increase our joy. We must ask the why is Adar chosen to be the season of increased happiness. This is the last month of the Hebrew calendar. We're about to begin the first month of the Hebrew calendar next month. That's the month of Nisan in which the Passover occurs. So you would think the month of the Passover would be the season that we would increase our joy. It's known as the time of our freedom. Nisan means miracles of miracles. It's a month of miracles. So why wouldn't we call Nisan the month of, of, of miracles? Why would we call that the month of joy and gladness? Why is Adar the, 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 the month where to increase our joy? The joy of the month of the Passover is a reaction to the great miracles that we experience. Listen, if I told you today you want a million dollars or you want a new car, what would you do? You would get out of your seat and jump up and down and be like, yeah, praise God, right? It's a natural to be happy when something really good happens to you, but that's not what it means in Hebrew to be marbim basimcha, to increase your joy. But if something negative happens to you and you are still able to rejoice, that means that you have connected with joy at a deeper level. See, it's a superficial joy in some sense to just be happy when everything is going well. The question is, in the midst of the darkness, when you can't see the hand of God in the midst of everything that's going on in your life, and it seems like the Hamans are coming against you, and there's people that have a noose, and they want to lynch you at your work, or a friend wants to stab you in the back, or something difficult is going on, if you can rejoice even in the midst of that, that is what the story of Esther is meant to teach us. Because God's name is never, you know what? The book of Esther almost doesn't make it into the Bible. The rabbis almost did not include the book of Esther in the Bible. Why? It's the only book in which God's name isn't mentioned. You will not find God one time mentioned in the book of Esther, his name. The rabbis, how do we include a book of the Bible that doesn't mention God? It's all, the book is all about God. But that's the whole point of the story the story is very tragic until the very end when the tables are turned and all miracles are happening all around throughout the entire story. They are all hidden. And it's not to the very end when it all comes together. The pieces all come together. And Purim is about seeing how the good evolved out of what originally appeared to be a really bad situation. Can we trust the heart of God even when we can't see the hand of God in our life? Listen, I think I shared this story maybe when I was here with you last time that I moved out to California to start what I believed was my dream job. Man, it was amazing ministry position. I came out here after being out here six months. My second child is born. All of a sudden, God tells me, you're going to go through a season of Joseph, that I'm going to have people that are going to throw me in a pit, and, and I'm going to go. It's not exactly what you want to hear. You're going to go, God says you're going to go through a season of Joseph, not what you want to hear. And God says, though, but I'll take you to the pits and the prisons. I'll purify, I'll teach you to depend upon me, and I'll take you from prison to the palace. And losing my ministry role and everything that happened was the best thing that ever happened to me. God opened up something so much better. What seemed to be bad actually turned out for good. As it says in Esther 8.16, for the Jews there was light and gladness, joy and honor. And joy is connected to light. Think about it for a moment. In ancient Israel, what did you use to light your home? You use olive oil. 
But how do you make olive oil? You have to take an olive, you have to put it into the olive press, it has to be crushed, it has to be broken, it has to be stepped on, it has to go through some stuff so that the true inner value of the olive, which is the oil, which is far more valuable, is able to be released. We have this inner potential, we have this inner essence, we have this inner light, but guess what? You gotta go through some crushing, you're gonna have to go through being a little bit stepped on in life for God to bring out of you the fullness of potential that he has placed within you. It's in the midst of that that he brings out the light that is in your life. Out of the darkness, God brings light. And that's what God does in the book of Esther. And if we want to be a light, if we want to be attractive, if we want to live our lives with a contagious, infectious joy that illuminates the spaces that we enter, we have to learn to find joy even in the midst of difficulties. How many, we all know someone that when they enter the room, the whole room lights up. Right, you just, they just enter the room and they're just, whoa, who turned up the lights in here? That's what we're called to carry when we carry the kingdom. We're called to carry this radical sense of joy. But too, much, too many times we're living in the oys of life and not in the joys of life. And God wants to take us from oy to joy. He wants to transform our oy into joy. He wants to turn our pains and our problems into the very promises that he has for that. And the foundation of that joy is learning to have faith and trust in God and the joy of knowing that he was with us always, even to the end of the age. One of the awesome things about the story of, of the book of Esther, the, the, the backstory that, that people don't get, the grace and the goodness of God, even out of the painful situations to bring about his good in our life. Think about it. God chooses David, before God chooses David to be king of Israel, he chooses, who was the first king of Israel? King Saul from the tribe of what? Benjamin. But Saul is disobedient to God. He, doesn't, he disobeys. He doesn't have the type of faith that God wants. He takes the kingdom from, from, uh, from, from, from Saul and he gives it to David from the house of Judah. And, and, and part of the reason why he took it from Saul is because Saul was disobedient and wiping out the Amalekites. He says, wipe them all out, but he spares their king. He spares the cattle. And he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't take them out. And so what happens? Hundreds of years later, there arises Haman. Boo! Haman! And who is Haman descended from? Amalek! The one who King Saul was disobedient to not wipe out. And because he didn't obey God, now the entire existence of the Jewish people is at a threatened But what does God do in his grace? He raises up Mordecai and Esther to finish the job. But what tribe are Mordecai and Esther from? The tribe of Benjamin. God gave Benjamin a second chance. The throne was taken from King Saul, but he put Queen Esther on it. And it was only because of the pain and the problems and the the possibility of annihilation. It was in the darkest moment that God raises Esther up and uses her and Mordecai in ways that they could never even have imagined. And everything shifts. And the kingdom of God that we're called to carry is a joyous one. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinkingness, but of righteousness and what? Peace and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. If we're full of the Holy Spirit, we got to be full of joy. Joy and silliness is one of the signs that we're filled with the kingdom and that the kingdom of God is in our midst. You cannot be filled with the spirit and live continually from a place of sadness. This is the spirit of Amalek. It's the fullness of the spirit that brings the fullness of the joy. And it was what changed the disciples after the death of Jesus from fear to faith, from sadness to joy. It was the Holy Spirit that came came upon them. And in fact, joy was one of the hallmarks of the early community in the book of Acts. It says Acts 2.46 
So continually with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. How did they eat? With joy. How did they live? With joy. Friends, we should be a community that embodies that joy. When people come in this house, they should say, man, I just, I, I come in and, man, I just, I just, I leave different. I sense love. I sense happiness. My spirit is uplifted. Some, the heaviness goes. And where does this joy come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 52. Galatians 5, 22. But the, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And what's the second one? Joy. We should be the type of people that carry this simcha. Can you say simcha? Carry this joy that lights up the joint. Just like in the book of Esther. And so the type of joy that we're talking about in the book of Esther, it's a light and laughter that comes from the place of darkness and defeat. You know what the greatest joy is? It's a joy that comes from darkness. It's the joy that comes from feet. It's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like when you watch a great sports game and your team is down and they have an amazing comeback and they snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. You're like, yeah! Right? Those are the greatest joys when you, against all hope, against all odds, and you pull it out at the end. Man, that is the greatest joy. It's a joy that we have in the time of darkness. It's a joy knowing that God works all things out together for good. And that is the message behind the story of Esther's. And one of the biggest problems that we have that robs us of our joy goes back to Genesis, to the very Garden of Eden. The spirit of Amalek is the spirit of doubt and depression. And what got us in this mess in the very beginning? The, the, the serpent comes to Eve and says, what? Did God really say? He got her to doubt. What did she doubt? She doubted the goodness of God. Man, God's holding out on us. He doesn't, want, he, he doesn't want us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God knows the day that you eat of it, you'll become like him. And Eve, like, man, I thought God was good, but he's holding out. And friends, sometimes we believe God is holding out. He's holding out his goodness. He's withholding the blessing, but he never does that. Every good and perfect gift comes from him, the father of light. And in the book of Esther, it teaches us never to doubt. It's like, who is the one who has Esther win the beauty pageant? Who is the one that wait, who causes Mordechai to find about the plot against the king? Who is the one who wakes up the king in the middle of the night? He can't sleep. He can't go back to bed. He says, read to me from the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. And it just happens to be on the page where it's talking about how Mordechai had saved his life. Who did all that? It was God working in it. So the question is, do you believe that God is working in your life even when you struggle to see him? The Hamans and the Vashis of this world can never be happy. Why? Because they're looking at the wrong things. The Hamans and the Vashis are always looking at the external, never at the internal. They look at the external things, not the internal things. Our joy comes from the spirit. It comes from the kingdom of God. And where is the kingdom of God in what? Within us. The spirit of God within us. We can't look out for the joy. We look inside, not inside in a new age way, but we look to the presence and the spirit of God that dwells in us as our source of joy. It's not external, it's internal. But there's another aspect of our joy. Our joy is not external, our joy is eternal. We look for the eternal joy of the promise of the Messiah and the promise of the kingdom. And Teddy Roosevelt, our great president, said this, 
The comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. So Haman, why can't he be joyful? Because he's always looking at what he doesn't have. He's the second most powerful man in all of Persia. But there's this Jew and he's sitting in the gate of the city and he won't bow down to me. And he has something that I want, and I, and I don't get it. That that's why he doesn't just want to wipe out Mordechai. He wants to wipe out the entire Jewish people because he sees that God's people has something that he could never have, and he becomes jealous, and he compares himself, and he wants to wipe them out. Looking at what others have instead of focusing on what we have. This is Vashti. How many, how, many, how, many, how many of you women out there, or even men out there, look in the mirror and we hate what we see? Because we compare ourselves to the pictures on the magazines. We compare ourselves to the images in the media. And we say, man, I, you know, I, you know, I'm not, my waistline isn't small enough. And, and I don't, and, and, and I don't have the right color eyes or the right color hair. I don't look, I don't have the right weight or whatever it is. Or how many of us men look out there, man, if I only had, look at that job he has. Look at my job. Look at my life. Look at whatever it is. And we go into this place of compassion. Comparison, and what it does is it begins to, we begin to believe the lies and it robs us of the blessing. And part of the problem in doing this is that we become focused on perfection instead of goodness. Beauty is related to goodness, it's not related to perfection. In fact, perfection will rob you of the goodness and will rob you of the joy that's associated on it. And you look at the media and it's the perfect body. It's the perfect hair. It's the perfect clothing. It's the perfect house. It's the perfect wife. It's the perfect family. And so we think, man, if, if, if we think, man, we got to have these things or else our lives will be incomplete and not perfect. We think we have to have the perfect house and the perfect job and the perfect wife and the perfect kids who go to the perfect school to get the perfect grade, to get into the perfect college, to get, find the perfect job, to get the perfect spouse so that they can live the perfect happy life like we are not. It's insanity. The drive for the perfection is robbing us. To be perfect, you live in, to pursue perfection, you live in a state of comparison which robs you of your joy and creates great oy. I got news for you. God doesn't create the world perfect. It doesn't say that in Genesis 21. It says he creates it what? Good. Good is not perfect. They're not the same thing. When I'm sick, and I go to the doctor, and he gives me medicine, it's good for me. It's not fun. When I'd eat my vegetables as a kid, it was good for me, but it wasn't perfect. French fries were perfect. (laughs) Broccoli, not so perfect. But it's good for me. So the good means that which is beneficial. So the point is that when you go, if you're looking for the perfect, when you go through difficulties and life doesn't turn out the way you want, then you get depressed and discouraged because my life's not perfect. God doesn't promise you a perfect life. God doesn't promise you that everything is the same. God works all things together for God works all things together for perfect, for perfection. He works all things together for what? Good. Never promises us perfection. What he promises us is goodness. And goodness is connected to beauty and joy. Haman was not happy because he wanted perfection and not goodness. And he knew he could never achieve it. Comparing himself to others, the spirit of Amalek robs us of our joy by having us focus on the perfect instead of the goodness of God And it also by getting us to believe that we are disconnected. Sadness and depression is rooted in disconnection and isolation. 
Sadness and depression is rooted in disconnection and isolation. Depression is anger turned inward, and it's an anger that is rooted in a fear that we are disconnected and we are alone. Nobody sees me. Nobody cares for me. Nobody loves me. Nobody's there for me. I'm all alone, whether it be God or other people that are are not there. It's rooted in that false feeling. And I'm not talking about chemical depression, but we're, we're, we feel far from God, our true selves and others. And when this feeling of deep pain occurs, it robs us of our joy. You can't have a joyful life and be disconnected and separated. What is hell at its essence? It's literally what? Separation. Right? When I fight, the worst thing isn't fighting with someone you love. It's when they choose to not talk to you at all. And just walk out on the relationship and cut you off. That's the worst thing, the silent treatment. It's that total separation. God is about connection, not about separation. And depression is rooted in this sense of disconnection and isolation and separation. And it literally becomes like a living hell. Fragmentation and loss. And this goes back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1 where God says it's not good for what? So in the midst of paradise, Adam has perfect fellowship with God. And he says, there's something wrong in paradise. There's a problem in Eden. The problem is Adam is alone. What do you mean Adam's alone? He's walking with God. He's talking with God. He's having this encounter with God. And yet there's something not good in Eden. Yes, Adam was alone. He was connected from God on, a, on one level, but he needed to be connected with someone on his own level. And that sense of disconnection was not good. And Adam could not have everything God intended. And here's a heretical, here's a truth that some of you might want to stone me for. So I'm bracing myself. God will not meet all your needs. God will not meet all your needs. There is a false spirituality that we undermine the joy that God wants to give us when we believe God is going to meet all our needs. Let me explain to what I I mean by that. God is all you need for salvation. He's all you need for eternal life. To go to heaven, he sent Jesus, he died for us, he rose from the dead, we believe in him, we give our life to him, we make him the Lord of our lives, we have eternal life. But let me tell you what, God gives us, a God's promise for us is greater than eternal life. Because, it's, because eternal life implies quantity. You can have a long life, it doesn't mean the quality of your life is going to be good. He doesn't just promise quantity of life, which is amazing. He promises us quality of life, which is John 10, 10. The thief comes to rob and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have what? Life abundantly, not just abundant life. Let me tell you what, you can't have abundant life apart from a relationship with him and a relationship with one another. So the reason why it connects to joy is because, listen, if we're, if, you know, sometimes when people are going through depression, they're going through pain, they're going through a t- situation, and we make them feel guilty, we're like, man, if you only love Jesus more, if you only pray more, if you only have enough faith, then you would be okay. So obviously there's something deficient with your faith and your spirituality, or else you wouldn't be struggling with loneliness and isolation and depression. God raises us up to meet other people's needs, to minister to them, to love them. Man is alone before the fall, and it's not, this isn't after the fall, this is before the fall. Something is low tov, not good in Eden. If depression is about disconnection, the word, one of the words for joy in Hebrew is chedva. It comes, it's connected to the root echad, which means one. What does it teach us? Joy comes from what? Oneness. Comes from connection. Jesus' last prayers, he prays that our joy might be what? Complete. 
And what else does he pray? Father, I pray that they might be one as we are one. Because oneness and joy go hand to hand. God doesn't just pray that we would be one with him, praise him for that, but he prays we'd be one with who? Each other. You can't have the fullness of joy without community. You can't have the fullness of joy without relationship. And God doesn't turn the story in the book of Esther until all the people, Esther says, to tell all the Jews to fast and pray. And it's when they all fast and pray that everything changes and transforms. We need each other for our joy to be complete. We need each other to help take away the loneliness and isolation. To bring wholeness and unity. That's why I'm so big on trying to bring together Jews and Gentiles. Because let me tell you, I, I, feel, like, I feel like the church is like a single parent family. If you have the story of Ruth and Boaz that birthed the line of David and the Messiah, Ruth is a Gentile, Boaz is a Jew from the tribe of Judah. It's only when the Jew and Gentile together that they birth the promise, that they birth the kingdom. There's four genealogies, there's four women in the genealogy of Jesus. They're all Gentile. Why? Because you can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth until Jew and Gentile do it together. Ruth and Boaz, the restoration of these things. And so we have to pursue unity. We have to pursue relationships. And influence church and the entire body of Messiah needs to be a place for developing healthy relationships and community. And Tertullian said this, early theologian and apologist in the second century says, your joy is where your hope is. Our joy will never be greater than the measure of our hope. The reason being is that joy is rooted in hope. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. We could paraphrase it like this. Let your joy be the joy that comes from hope. Bear the fruit of joy in the branch of hope. Be glad because you have hope. Joy, hope, and the Holy Spirit are all connected. Romans 5, verse 2. Through Messiah we have obtained access to his grace which we stand and we rejoice in our hope, sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produces endurance. Endurance endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts of the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us. So Paul, Paul says that he does everything that he commands in Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Paul rejoices in suffering. Why? Because he knows that his suffering will produce hope. And hope is the source of joy in Paul's life, no matter what it is that he's going through. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it like this, joy and peace of believers arise chiefly chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared with what is laid up for them. What's laid out upon them is little compared to what is laid up for us. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Believers should desire and labor for an abundance of hope, which produces joy. Because what is hope? Our hope is the belief that our future is going to be better than our past. Do you believe that? that God is saving the best for last for you. That God is working it together for good. It's Joseph, what others meant for evil, God means for good. It's hope against hope that causes joy to burst forth. And biblical joy is not natural, but it's spiritual. You can't be like the apostles, get beaten and come out rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. It's not natural. Biblical joy is not an act of willpower. It comes from the source of the Holy Spirit. And it's easier to rejoice at the beginning, but sometimes it's harder to rejoice at the end, especially when it seems like the end is going to be the end of us. When we're going through hardships and difficulties, it seems like in the book of Esther, the end is going to be the extinction of, of the people. But the end is never the end. The end is just the beginning. 
And as I was reflecting on the month of Adar, it seems to make sense that Purim would occur in the month of Adar. Why? It makes perfect sense to increase our joy because Purim comes at the end of the biblical calendar. This is the last month. So at the end, even in the midst of the end, we need to have joy. And the end reminds me of the end of history. And the end of history, we know there's gonna be all sorts of tough stuff that God's people are going to have to go through. But why can we rejoice even when we see ISIS chopping off people's heads and, uh, of Coptic Christians and the craziness? Why can we rejoice? Why can we have hope? Because we have a blessed hope. We have an eternal hope. We know that no matter what happens to us, ultimately it's gonna end the way God promises it to end, which is the coming of the Messiah and the return of his kingdom. And God will fulfill every promise he made to Israel. ISIS isn't going to wipe him out. ISIS isn't going to take over the world. Why? Because God has a promise and we know the plan that he has for us. And we live in light of what he says. His word speaks a better word than anybody else. Amen. God has a better word for your life than all of the haters in your life, than all of the doubters in your life, than all of the naysayers in your life, than all of Joseph's brothers who try and say, here comes the dreamer, throws you in a pit, tries to crush your God dream. You can't kill a God dream. They always come to pass. You can't curse what God has blessed. Israel's in Egypt in slavery and they multiply. That's how God works. God can win with any hand. He loves it. He loves to show up and show off. There was a famous rabbi who dies. And his disciple is, his, one of his disciples is, is, is given the rabbi's clock and he's traveling home and he, it's really bad weather and he was traveling by horse and he had to stay at the inn for longer than he expected. He didn't have the money to pay the innkeeper for the extra days so he bartered with him and gave him the nice clock and the rabbi, the, the, the innkeeper put it on the, the wall of one of the rooms and one day this famous rabbi came through and all night, the innkeeper could hear the rabbi singing and dancing and shouting and stomping. And no one got any sleep in the inn, including the innkeeper. And he was really ticked the next day. He's like, you paid to stay here and you didn't even sleep. You made this noise. What is going on? And the rabbi said, where'd you get that clock? And he explained the story of how he got this clock. And he said, I knew this clock was not an ordinary clock. He said, if you want to know what was going on last night, he said, this clock is different from every clock. He says, normally when you look at a clock, it's depressing because you say, man, another hour of my life has passed. Another minute of my life is gone. I'm, I'm closer to the end now than I was before, Right. I'm closer to the grave now than I was before. My time is running out. That's what we see when we see the clock. My time is running out. Right there, I can see it. <laughs> but it's the opposite. He said, this clock is the opposite. This is the Messiah's clock. The clock of the Messiah. This doesn't count down. It counts up. It says we are one. We are one day. We are one Hour. We are one minute. We are one second coming to the closer of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom. He said, how can I not sing and dance when I know he's coming? That's the hope in which we live. It's the hope in which God has given us. And the thing about sadness, disconnection, but it also comes from a place when we feel like something's missing. Right? We're sad when somebody passes away. Why? Because there was someone that was in my life that is not there. There was someone missing from my life. We're sad when we lose our house or our, or, or our pet because there was something there that's now it's gone and sadness point focuses on what we've lost as opposed to what we have and the promises is that God promises us a hope and a future it's kind of like think about it right 
We get focused on the wrong things and the loss of the wrong things. The streets of heaven are paved with what? And we get really impressed. We're like, man, the Lord is blinging out heaven. (laughs) Bling, bling. Everywhere you go. Gates of pearls, streets of gold. Do you know why heaven's paved with, with gold? Because that which is most valuable here is only worth walking on there. The kingdom of heaven flips the world's values on its head. It seems like complete nonsense. Light comes from darkness. Uh, We have to lose our life to be able uh, to find it. Uh, The greatest among you is going to be a, a servant. It's humble yourself and lower yourself and then the Lord is going to lift us up. You mean I don't have to be my own hype man? You mean the way to have up treasures in heaven is to, to give stuff away f- for the Lord? You mean lo- it's, it's loss that's going to lead to gain? And it's my death that's going to lead to my life? It's the cross that leads to the crown. It's the humiliation that leads to the exaltation. That's why the joy that he gives us is not as the world gives us. It's an eternal, lasting, enduring joy that cannot be robbed despite our situation and circumstances. And more than ever, the world needs a little joy. It needs a little light. It needs to be a little laughter. And we are the one that God is going to give because our future is rooted in eternal hope. It's not external. It's eternal. It's not external. It's internal. Because everything we need, God has already given to us for life and godliness. And we bless him for that. In Yeshua's name, amen. So Lord, I just want to thank you for everyone in this room here today. And I'm asking God, there is no shame if people here are are struggling with loneliness and with isolation. I thank you that you sent Jesus so that we wouldn't have to be alone. That you say you stand at the door and knock, that you want to come in and fellowship and dine with us, that you promise to give us your spirit, and you say, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's that promise is that you not only redeemed us, but that you have this eternal relationship with us. The worship team can come on up. We thank you for that, Lord. And I'm asking that Influence Church would be marked by joy. It would come from the joy of knowing you. It would come from the joy of serving and being relationship with others. That part of their influence would be the influence of joy on this community. That they would rejoice with those who rejoice. That they would bring light and love everywhere that they go. And that you would expand their sphere of influence. We pray that blessing over over Pastor Phil and Tammy, Lord. That blessing over this community. That this is a season of transformation. This is a season of change. This is a season of turnaround. And whatever you need a turnaround in your life right now, the Lord is in the business of second chances. He is in the business of divine turnarounds. Like he turned around the situation for Mordecai and Esther. There is nothing so bad that you are going through that the Lord can't bring you through and even use for the good in your life. And so we call for things that are not in the name of your Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, and I speak blessing over everyone's here in the name of your Son. Amen.